everybody, welcome to the podcast. In today's episode, my guest is Casey Bowman. Casey is a seasoned software developer and a full-time Bitcoin engineer. We've actually met each other a few years ago back at our previous job, but what really has struck me the most about Casey is his love and continual passion for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. We talk emphatically about Bitcoin in the chat, everything from what it is, how it works, what it's all about, what its future is, what the blockchain is. So for those who are interested in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, I think this conversation is just for you. So with that, I really hope you enjoy the chat. And remember, if you like these videos, if you like these podcasts, please don't forget to subscribe. I really do appreciate it. And with that, I really hope you enjoy my chat with Casey Bowman. Hello, Casey. How are you? Hey, Barry. Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining the call. Um, <laughs> I know that we were just speaking about a bunch of things before, but uh, you know, I, will, I appreciate you coming on and sort of uh, telling us about yourself. But I, I want to let you sort of introduce yourself a little bit because I know we are we have a lot to get, to get in. Um, and I should preface this uh, conversation by letting everyone know that we are friends. We've been friends for uh, many years now. And so we might go off at little tangents here and there, but uh, I hope that we'll, uh, we'll keep the conversation sane, uh, productive, and as informative as possible because I think a lot of people are, you know, as, as far as I know, I'm, I'm interested in what you guys are, uh, what you're doing uh, with Bitcoin and what have you and sort of your dealings with uh, the Bitcoin community and just cryptocurrency in general. So I really want to hear a lot about what you have to say. Uh, but before we all do that, let's get into a quick one minute uh, intro about yourself. One minute? Yeah, one minute. Or if you want okay. more, go ahead. <laughs> okay, two minutes. We'll see. But right, anyway, uh, okay, so my background is um, I uh, became interested in the idea of how to have a, a better uh, theory of money back in grad school at Stanford. I was in a, a department called Engineering Economic Systems. And uh, there uh, I was sort of thinking about using a monetary theory, but I just didn't find one that was very satisfactory. So <clears throat> that's been a passion of mine then and since to come up with, I, I came up with some ideas then and some ideas since, and uh, it's sort of been a passion of mine through my, uh, through my life. And uh, we're searching this, understanding it better, trying to make some uh, uh, advancement in these ideas, uh, more at a microeconomic level um, than your typical macro kind of theory. Um, so, uh, you know, game theory, micro, you know, my, my department focused on microeconomics, game theory, that sort of thing. So it was a, I loved it. It was a great department for me. Um, so um, once, uh, once down the road, uh, around 2011, uh, I was in New York City working on Wall Street, um, and uh, uh, I, I, I uh, uh, came across Bitcoin at that time uh, in 20, let's see, it was, uh, May of 20, uh, May of 20, was it 11? Yeah, May of 2011, and, uh, 11, and uh, um, it, 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 I was just sort of interested in exploring the ideas about how um, abstract money would work uh, or monies would work. 
And uh, when when Bitcoin uh, hit my radar, I realized it sort of fit the criteria I was looking for. And so I became in, in, immediately interested in it, started participating in meetups. And um, uh, there was a conference there for it had 80 people. It was like the first worldwide Bitcoin conference in uh, New York City. It was really uh, kind of interesting. Um, and uh, and then um, uh, I moved back to San Francisco, uh, to which is my hometown. And uh, uh, attended meetups there. You know, when I first got back in 2012, uh, there was just one meetup in all the Bay Area that I knew of, which had maybe a dozen people. <laughs> you know, so things were really, you know, not many people were really into it. Um, and that changed like May 2013. There was a big conference in San Jose and all of a sudden there were 80 people showing up and then there were all different, all sorts of meetups going on. And so, uh, you know, I was working hard at my job and I, I was just trying to keep in t- keep uh current with what's going on in Bitcoin at that time and learning, you know, about it through the meetups that I was participating in the networking I was doing. And uh, that just continued on. I got a, another job where I met you in 2015, where I came down in the South Bay. I live in Los Gatos now in California, which is about 50 miles south of San Francisco. Uh, and um, I, uh, uh, again, was was interested in doing some stuff. I wanted to do some open source stuff, but, you know, you're working so hard when you're working in a company. And, you know, I was just working all hours, as you know. And uh, so, you know, uh, 2018, I decided, okay, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to try to do, try to learn on my own and, uh, but, uh, and also uh, uh, start a project of my own and see how that goes. Um, so, so anyway, um, uh, I've taken the time off. I've, I've been spending a lot of time uh, uh, learning. I was also, I also learned about uh, short-term price movements. We've talked about that, uh, you and me, Barry, before. Uh, I uh, had a course with Tone Vase. I, I, I learned about short-term price movements because I was very, I, my training is more understanding long-term price in issues. I mean, that's what my strength is. Uh, and then also I took a course from Jimmy Song to learn programming Bitcoin. He came he wrote a book on uh, with O'Reilly on programming Bitcoin from scratch uh, using Python, and I uh, took that course. And out of that course, actually, and, and another activity I participated in Stanford, I, I went to Stanford Bitcoin Club and went through a, a Princeton book on crypto, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technology. We did a, a peer-to-peer reading group, and that really struck me as a great way to learn. So, in fact, after the programming Bitcoin uh, session with Jimmy Song, where he went through a bunch of stuff in two days, like, a zillion miles per hour, what normally he would cover over a quarter, you know, he just, it's like sipping out of a fire hose. <laughs> so we all, we, you know, a couple, a number of us decided to do it on our own. So we had a reading group that came out of that from the alumni. And we've gone through Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, another O'Reilly book. Uh, Andreas Antonopoulos led, by the way, the San Francisco Bitcoin devs, which I participated in for years. Um, and uh, we've gone through Programming Bitcoin, rocking Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, we're, we're currently doing Lightning Network. There's another uh, book, Mastering the Lightning Network, with three authors, including Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, another guy, Renee Picard, and Roast Beef. Um, we've also, in the reading group, uh, done a number of other things with uh, uh, programming Rust, uh, learning Rust, uh, the Rust program, uh, programming language. A couple, two of the, both of those books. We're doing advanced Java. We're uh, we w- we've gone through Go and gRPC and, and some of those stuff. So anyway, the reading groups has been another activity of mine uh, uh, as uh, during my time off. And uh, let's see. So you know, that's just sort of a, a bit of background for me. The um, you know, you mentioned in 2011. I think you you mentioned about the Bitcoin exposure, right? And and mm-hmm. knowing yourself about Bitcoin a little bit. But what I mean, I know you did a lot of work at Stanford about uh, economic theory and currency movements and what have you but what specifically about bitcoin drew you drew your attention i mean the fact that bitcoin 
is because at that point in time, I remember hearing about Bitcoin. It was a very esoteric term, and I think you know I, I read a bit of white papers here and there. But I'm sure you dug deeper than I did. What specifically about Bitcoin gravitated towards you? Well, okay, this is going to be a bit of a teaser, okay? <laughs> because actually, I haven't, I haven't put forth my the ideas I've been working on, and so, and I, you know, everybody at Stanford, uh, uh, at Santa Cruz Bitcoin uh, meetup gets all upset at me. They're like, "You tease us too much." It's like, um, well, uh, eventually, I mean, we'll have a second follow up on this, okay? I promise. We'll we'll, we'll do a we'll do a little follow up uh, right. at yeah. some point where I will like, you know, yeah, go into those details. But right now, I, I you know those. Those things I really want to sort of get in some form, and, and I want to do an open source uh, uh, piece of writing uh, where I bring out those ideas, and uh, uh, and then 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 I'll be able to talk in more detail with regard to what what my thinking has been. But for now, it's sort of something I've I've worked on hard, and I've just sort of kept to myself. Uh, and uh, um, but I will be I will be sharing that. Um, so in terms of the essentials of what, 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 like, I mean, I just, just to sort of talk about the questions, I won't sort of reveal the answers that I think I have. And again, I may be completely wrong, but uh, the questions that I was looking at were really uh, sort of, you could sum them up in, in two, two, uh, two questions. Uh, and really questions are, are really most of uh, uh, the work that's involved. <laughs> you ask the right question. So, you know, for me, the, the questions are, um, first, uh, what makes for a good money? You know, you, you have, um, say, say you've, you've come from a perspective of your, your traditional uh, mainstream economics where you learn error de brew, uh, general equilibrium theory and all this, and uh, you've got goods and stuff and prices that happen. And it's, it's really interesting to understand all that. You know, it incorporates all the ideas from the marginal utility uh, revolution of the late 1800s to understand price better. Um, but still, um, money isn't in there. It's just like you pick something. It's all relative prices. And so you pick something and, and they typically use a fancy word, a French word, which is always, you know, I'll mention probably another one by the end of this uh, podcast. But they use the word numeraire <laughs> to just say, OK, we, check, we, we choose one good and that's sort of what we measure everything else by. It could be an orange. <laughs> so, you know, everything's in oranges, but, you know, in, in the real world, no, we don't use oranges for money. <laughs> so what is it that makes for a good money? And so um, and it could be that it's not just one money. It could be, you know, that other uh, there are a number of monies that work together in some way. And so there's that question that well, that's one question that and then <laughs> the second question is, what is its value going to be? And what are the values of the various monies going to be? And so that's another question. So these are the two questions that I've been focusing on. And I think they're, you know, uh, I, you know, when I started thinking about this and working this, it was very, very taboo. I mean, this is like the dark ages back when I was at Scratch. And, and you know, things have changed a great deal. Um, I was talking with, when I was in New York City, I was talking with my old, uh, one of my uh, professors on my dissertation committee uh, uh, who was working. He was just saying, it's just changed so much, so much these days now. It's, uh, uh, you know, there's seminars where people talk openly about free, free, free money, which is sort of the term that Hayek would use. Uh, to characterize this uh, idea of having uh, various monies and seeing, you know, seeing what works, sort of like free trade, you talk free money. Uh, it's not that the money is free. It's just that, you know, there's freedom within choosing monies and what, what happens and sort of, you know, how that all works. So um, I think uh, times have changed. So now people are debating it, interested in it. So it's, it's like heaven to me. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the, the fact that you had all of these ideas sort of percolating um, from, 
uh, graduate school and your sort of findings with Bitcoin, you know, what is, so just to sort of paint a very high level picture for everyone who have heard of Bitcoin, but don't necessarily know exactly what it is. And can you sort of explain what is, what is Bitcoin from a thousand foot level? And then we can sort of take it down from there. But I really okay. want people to understand why Bitcoin is such all, why is such the craze right now. And we can talk about other altcoins down later on. But but just Bitcoin as sort of the 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 OG, you know, the main uh, currency, the cryptocurrency that has sort of uh, took off. Um, what is that uh, in a nutshell? Okay, and and just from a thousand feet up, uh, first of all. Um, I am somebody who believes that uh, from my own thinking uh, that there will be one cryptocurrency that will dominate. Uh, now, it could be that Bitcoin is superseded by something else in the future. And uh, during the early years, I think that was a higher there's a higher probability of that. Um, as time goes on, I think there's a lower probability of that. Uh, so just just from the onset, you know, I'm I'm. I'm someone who believes that there will be, you know, one one crypto one cryptocurrency that will dominate, and I and I see that as Bitcoin, uh, and you know, it, it's proven itself for quite a long time now, and uh, so I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm you know that's what I'm supporting. Although I am interested in looking at other things, like you know, I was interested in Mimblewimble. Uh, you know, we won't go into all that detail, but there are other there are other uh, cryptocurrencies that you know could supersede it and have better quality. So you know, you always want to be aware of that. Um, you know, Bitcoin could go to zero. I want to tell everybody, Bitcoin could go to zero. So just always, if you're ever going to get involved, you know, I tell my family and friends, you know, just put in what, what you know, if you're going to support it, you know, just expect to lose it all. <laughs> so right. just just mm -hmm. to start with. Okay. Um, but that's not my belief. Uh, okay. So, so uh, with Bitcoin, um, we have a... Uh, um, we have something that is really, it's not a physical commodity. It's just ones and zeros. <laughs> so how does that work? You know, all sorts of people have qualms about that. They want to have something behind it, you know, gold or something, you know, just, you know, you know, and then again, gold, I mean, gold fits into my theories and stuff like that. There's reasons why gold was used as a money. Um, but, you know, again, technology does uh, change things as time goes on. And I think Bitcoin is something that is changing things as time goes on, but the qualities of a money fairly classic. You can look back at history and sort of understand sort of what makes for a good money and think about it mathematically and figure out what makes for a good money. There are all sorts of different ways you can sort of get a perspective on this. But the point is that technology does move on. And there are these things that arise, just like Bitcoin has arisen, which maybe fit the fit fit the bill. Um, so Bitcoin, what Bitcoin is, is uh, just, just to sort of give a very, very uh, simple uh, vision of it. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's an open source software that means anyone can work on it and anyone can contribute to it. You can if you if you don't like the way that it's going, you can you can you can uh, modify it and and have your own version of Bitcoin if you want. But you know basically no one will follow you. <laughs> you know you'll just be on your own. Uh, but there's sort of a mainstream uh, Bitcoin, but it has forked at times. There was a big fork a couple of years ago, which uh, got a lot. You know there's a lot of commotion about. Um, but there's been sort of this main core Bitcoin core that has been uh, the main uh, line of this open source uh, software. So there, it, all it is is this open source software that's up in Git somewhere, right? So uh, on GitHub, and so you know it's uh, it's software. That's all it is. And what it allows for is peer-to-peer -peer cooperation, uh, where you're running this software on various machines, and somehow. Uh, 
you are able to have uh, this 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 idea of something called the Bitcoin, and it's divisible into you know it's not like you have to buy one Bitcoin. You can actually buy you know what's called a Satoshi, I think, which is ten to the minus eighth, if I've got that right, of a Bitcoin. It's uh, you know very small. You know, I mean, and so you know you have this ability to, to generate, and there's sort of a there's a cap to them. There's going to be only twenty one million. There's sort of an asymptotic. You know, as time goes on, there there are more and more Bitcoins that are that are brought into the system. And, but it's an asymptotic thing, so it'll, it's, it's scheduled not to go above 21 million total, okay? So um, that sort of, uh, you know, at least for the layperson, that's really all you kind of need to know. For, for someone who's more technically inclined, uh, there is uh, this idea that, uh, and it, this sort of ties in with something I was working on in 1997, I, I, I was working on a little project of my own. Uh, to implement um, some payment for a time stamping service that somebody else had. And, and I sort of offered to, to try to help with that using uh, my newfound Java skills and uh, little Perl. And uh, I think, you know, uh, time stamping then really all it consisted of was this hash, which, you know, whatever you're time stamping, you've got some text or something, you know, a bunch of ones and zeros, whatever a file, you know, and you're creating a hash from it. Um, now, uh, hash is a one-way function. It's hard, it's easy to go one way, but it's hard to go the other. So uh, when you generate a hash from a file, you're just sort of, in a way, characterizing that file. If, if, if someone sees the hash, you can say, this file, verify, this file goes with this hash. Now, if you put these hashes in a structure where they sort of build one upon one another, uh, and one hash will not only depend on the file, but also depend on the hash before it, you can have this chain of hashes, which is what the timestamping service was umpteen years ago. And uh, you can periodically publish, say, in the New York Times or some, you know, uh, publication of, of, of record. This is sort of the thinking back then. I mean, now it's changed. But then the thinking was you periodically publish. And so you could have a timestamping service that would basically allow you to establish when documents existed. Say you wanted to prove that you had an idea. Uh, at such and such a year, you could do it through this timestamping uh, service. So uh, that that's sort of actually the root. Uh, a lot of uh, sort of the root of Bitcoin is this timestamping service of all things. And so um, Bitcoin kind of basically has this uh, this notion of, of of having hashes and uh, generating them and putting them into. And, and what they do is they sort of are trying to keep track of transactions. So when you move Bitcoin from person A to person B, that's sort of what you're going to be, in a sense, hashing is, is that record of you're moving the Bitcoin from one person to the other. And so uh, they have a structure which is a little more uh, complex than just a simple sort of line of hashes that I was just describing. What they do is they, they bunch them into these blocks. And uh, so, you, you know, you, you have a block of these transactions and there's a limitation to the size of the block. And every on the average, every 10 minutes, uh, people who are working on verifying these blocks to make sure they're actually valid, uh, you know, there's no double spending, things like this. Uh, there are people who are working on that and they solve this little mathematical problem that takes computing uh, CPU, computing time. And so it's not it's not it's not cheap. And uh, whoever comes up with the answer first gets to be the one defining the next block. And so every 10 minutes, a new block is, is put on average, a new block is put along, you know, on this uh blockchain now, rather than hash chain, it's a blockchain. And, uh, and there's some, you know, details with regard to all that when, you know, I won't go into now, but basically that's the idea is that there's, that there's some uh, uh, way to uh, make sure that uh, we have sort of <laughs> solidified in, 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 you know, like, you know, like those, uh, 
mosquitoes in amber, you know, uh, they find you, you, you want to somehow have those transactions in amber and stuck there so you can see them and make sure, yeah, yeah, they're there. And you just sort of have this record, uh, almost like a geological record of, of all these transactions that are accumulating, accumulating, and you can say, okay, yes, these, this transaction happened back, you know, uh, five years ago. And, and, uh, you know, you can sort of track all these Bitcoins the way they're moving around. And, and it's a little more sophisticated, which is kind of neat. Bitcoin can not only move money from person A to person B, but you can have like, uh, for example, these uh, transactions where the Bitcoin will move into a state from which uh, you need the okay of two of three people to move it to the next state. And so you can you can imagine all sorts of interesting things you can do uh, with escrow and things like this. So, I, you know, there's a scripting language within Bitcoin, which is very simple because you don't want to have any, uh, you want to keep your uh, vulnerability, uh, your, your uh, uh, security, what do you, uh, uh, your vulnerability, you know, cross-section, whatever, uh, kind of limited. Uh, so uh, uh, it's a very simple scripting language, um, but it does it does have some power. Yeah, I think, you know, that was a really cool explanation. I think that sort of explains a lot um, about sort of the intricacies of, uh, of Bitcoin. I know that it can go uh, significantly much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And we and can sort of talk about that. You can join that. my reading group to do that. <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about your reading group uh, uh, later on, but I think for the most part, we uh, you know the the crypto world and Bitcoin specifically um, really launched a new industry um, for uh, not just cryptography but currency, um, you know, supply and demand, uh, economics, right? Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of levels to it. Uh, just to sort of bite into what you just were saying, um, <laughs> which I think is what you're trying to begin. Right. Okay, I, there, there are a couple of things that are really outstanding for me. Uh, one is just the principle of having good money. I think a good money in and of itself uh, will allow for a much healthier economy overall. And you know, that's 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 one topic just of it in and of itself. Uh, secondly, what's sort of what's really exciting to uh, anyone who's a software engineer is is you know when you have uh, it's one thing when you have software that's sort of working with itself. I mean, sort of software that's designed by one company that does sorts of things with one company, and that's great, fine. However, what if you have um, software agents that are from different companies that are sort of strangers to one another and don't necessarily trust one another, and they are dealing with issues of cooperation and scarcity? Well. You know, having some way of uh, to for for these software agents to uh, exchange value in some way, you know, just on the fly. I mean, imagine uh, you were trying to uh, uh, trying to do a uh, um, you know set up some sort of system outside of the internet where you're uh, you're trying to communicate and use bandwidth on the fly. And you're, you want to be able to pay for that bandwidth as you need it from the next uh, cell phone or something that, you know, you just are, you know, creating this, this mesh network or something or, you know, whatever it is, you just as sort of an example, uh, this offers an opportunity to, to be able to do that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I guess that sort of leads on to my next question about all these applications, right? So Bitcoin is just one application that we've spoken about on this so-called, on this blockchain that you mentioned, right? So you had the hash chain and then sort of manifested into the blockchain. And, you know, there are many types of blockchains, right? So with the with the Bitcoin blockchain, right, is it, can you talk about the decentralization of that blockchain, right? You mentioned about this ledger, 
or mm-hmm. sort of all of these transactions between you and myself, between you and your friends, your family. Where does that get? St- how does that get stored? Um, everywhere, <laughs> which is which is one reason actually, uh, and I'll get maybe eventually we'll talk about Lightning Network. I mean, there's an expense to this. Um, and talking about scarcity, there is a scarcity of a resource, and that resource is each of these blocks. Uh, these blocks are limited size, and so we just you know the sky is not the limit. And as Bitcoin has grown, it's reached that limit of the block size. And now there is a big discussion about that and whether to increase the block size or not. And that's actually where that 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 fork came a couple of years ago. Uh, so you know that's that that's another whole story. But the point is that uh, as Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin as it is, and as I expect it to continue to be, has a this limitation in the size of the Bitcoin block size, which uh, means that there's a scarcity. And so uh, uh, it's that scarcity, that expense is because really everyone, in the, everyone who's running a node, who's running uh, a node and, and maybe mining and, all, you know, all this sort of thing, uh, participating in the system, uh, they have to be able to uh, uh, have these copies of all the blocks, you know, that they're working with. And so, you know, there's an expense to that. And uh, uh, if we do talk about uh, layer two sorts of technologies where you build upon the Bitcoin core technology to add sort of features and and an extra layer on top uh, to facilitate faster and cheaper and smaller transactions. Uh, That's something called Lightning Network. That's one approach that's being taken and explored. And that's to uh, sort of deal with this this real expense that is involved with uh, those, those blocks being replicated everywhere. So if I'm if I'm a node, right, and you mentioned like you know anyone can be a node. Mm-hmm. So how how would you how would someone go about setting themselves up as a node in the blockchain in the Bitcoin network? Okay, so so all that all you have to do is install a Bitcoin Core node, and you know for example in our Lightning uh, Network uh, reading group we've 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 just uh, gone through a couple of sessions where everyone was uh, installing their Bitcoin Core node. And also a lightning node, and we, again, that's a sub, something separate. But um, it's just a matter of going, and following the dire- directions, you know. And uh, um, so, literally, it's, this, it's all about going, on. yeah, going to a website or going, downloading the the core, the the open source um, software, installing it onto your machine, yeah. and then away you go, right? Yeah, away you go, and you've got it. I mean, uh, the wallet that's included is sort of a. Um, you know, it's not the wallet you want to use. Uh, we can get into that. Uh, but the core functionality is is the defining core Bitcoin core technology. There are other implementations of it, um, but there is uh, one Bitcoin core, which is, you know, the, the dominant one. Uh, there are other implementations in Go and Scala and, you know, different different languages. But, uh, um, uh, I you know, if, if I were just sort of playing with this, I just... Uh, install the Bitcoin core somewhere. I mean, I've installed it on a Raspberry Pi. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's so what, what is it? What is it actually doing? So when you, once you install it and you let it run mm-hmm. and let's say, you know, I'm just on a, a MacBook at the moment, for example, what is the, uh, the software actually doing, uh, on the computer? Okay, so let's see. <laughs> so you you didn't want to get too technical, or you want to get technical? <laughs> well, now? we can get a bit technical here. <laughs> okay, so so first of all, you know, there I did mention mining, which is something that uh, the big boys do now. I mean, you know, and girls, uh, you know, they, they, this is something that initially, uh, when you download the Bitcoin Core and all that, I mean, from you know, way way f- long ago and far away, I. <laughs> uh, People would, would run this in, on their own machines and they'd be mining and stuff like that. But it's, you know, the right now, 
it's it's really something you know the margins and all that. I mean, it's something you do really only as a professional. Uh, and so when you download the current Bitcoin Core software, uh, you won't have the mining software abilities. So that's just just to start with. You won't be doing the mining. That's some you know that's some that's somewhere else where uh, you, you need to kind of. Uh, you know, talk to the you know uh, that, that's serious business and there are all sorts of different special processors people you know use now and and uh, all sorts of things like that so um, but with the Bitcoin core node that you would run yourself uh, you're going to be uh, uh, commu- you know your software will be uh, communicating with other peers setting up sort of a, a, a network with other peers and exchanging information about uh, uh, the blocks and, and in fact the initial pr- process is that uh, you'll get a bunch of headers and then uh, eventually all the block information will be downloaded and that can take some time. Uh, now, I think uh, last I did it, I, let's see, it, it can take a couple days, just the, the initial, you know, the initial, uh, but it's a lot faster now than it was uh, several, ver- you know, a number of versions ago. Uh, we're almost, I think it was like taking a week or something. It, it, it takes a significant, it used to take a significant amount of time to get all those blocks on your machine so you can sort of, you know, uh, be up to speed with the whole block blockchain and be able to verify the next block, you know, in the chain. So really that's, uh, you, you know, your, your, your software will be downloading all that information and will uh, then be in a position for, to uh, make sure, you know, be able to verify uh, any new blocks that uh, people, um, you know, other peers are, 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 are um, uh, communicating information about. And uh, with your wallet, you know, you'll, you'll basically be able to participate by sending and receiving Bitcoin. So there's a GUI that will appear. And again, this is this software. They're much better wallets than the Bitcoin Core wallet. The Bitcoin Core does the core stuff well, but the wallet is sort of, you know, pretty basic. So I would recommend other wallets instead of this one. Uh, but it does have a wallet where you can send and receive uh, Bitcoin. Um, let's see. Uh, and uh, I, you know. Hopefully, and within this discussion, I can mention hardware wallets. It's, a, it's probably the the best uh, best thing for people to use. Uh, uh, yeah, let's. I mean, let's quickly talk about the, the wallet stuff because you know I I know that you know we've established at least the baseline here where you know you can anyone can be a node. You can contribute to the network. Mm-hmm. Um, you can send and receive Bitcoin currency. Uh, mm-hmm. You just need to establish a, effectively a software or a hardware wallet. Now, I know that a lot of people out there have been hearing things like Coinbase, and they've been hearing um, other sort of uh, companies sort of coming to the uh, to the fro here and and sort of really establishing establishing themselves as uh, you know current uh, players in the cryptocurrency markets, right? So, for people like Coinbase, right, would you say that is a uh, is that is that a wallet? Okay, so Coinbase is a great way for people to sort of get involved to start with, um, and and for others, you know, to continue with in some aspects. But it, it's very simple service to start with. And uh, I still remember when Brian Armstrong, who heads uh, Coinbase, was just another guy at the San Francisco Bitcoin Dev uh, meetup. You know, <laughs> he started this company, and here he is doing so well in San Francisco. And uh, so. Uh, what it allows for is that you can basically connect your bank account uh, to their uh, service, which will, uh, they have an exchange as well. So they can uh, take your money from your bank account and tra- uh, and uh, exchange it for Bitcoin and you can keep it there if you want. Uh, you know, 
if you don't really know what you're doing, maybe that's fine to start with. However, um, there's a very important point with Bitcoin, and that is there uh, you basically uh, there there are keys that you have, and that's really what a wallet is. It just holds on to these keys. And the, the keys that you have are really what control the Bitcoin ultimately. So, you know, it's better really if you have your keys yourself and that way you're controlling the Bitcoin yourself. However, when you use a service like Coinbase, they have the keys. And so you're really trusting them to be uh, to do, you know, to behave. And so, uh, you know, yeah, it's an easy service to use and it's, and it's nice for people who really don't want the complexity and uh, the, the uh, you know, I mean, you have to sort of know what you're doing with these keys. If you lose them, then you've lost your money. So, you know, as you learn, maybe you'll start playing around a little bit with what, what are called hardware wallets, where the keys are on the hardware wallet. And, uh, and we can talk about that in more detail if you'd like. But uh, that's sort of the next step, I think, up from Coinbase. Um, so uh, and so, what is what is a hardware wallet then? Because we know, at least we've, we've established that people like Coinbase mm-hmm. uh, will take the the dirty work and really do everything for you. Sort of abstract that layer and yeah. sort of really just handle all the all the busy stuff. But I really, you know, the hardware wallet is also a bit interesting because mm-hmm. effectively you can take your money, which effectively are a manifestation of your keys. Mm-hmm. And you can go ahead, and you can you know take that wherever you go, and that is your bank account effectively uh, on the hardware wallet. So, just give us an example of why hardware wallets are so valuable, and why they're so important um, as opposed to a software wallet. Okay, so so first of all, um, when you're de- you know if you do start to get involved with Bitcoin, um, it's very important to know. Uh, a bit about just sort of the basics about security. I mean, um, sure, you can have like your, there are apps you can have on your Bitcoin, on your smartphone and you can pay with Bitcoin through these apps and stuff. That's fine. It's just don't, you know, treat it like a wallet that might be uh, taken. I mean, just don't have that much money in it, you know. And so the security on a smartphone is not great. So just assume that, you know, it's, it's going to be vulnerable. So you have a small amount there. Then um, I think the next larger amount, perhaps, you know, you have something in Coinbase or preferably you have your hardware wallet. This is a hardware wallet, example of a hardware wallet, um, where you hold your Bitcoin and control the key there. Um, and then there's a next next level. If you have a lot of money and all that, there are all sorts of strategies with regard to uh, making sure that, uh, you know, everything is uh, in a safety deposit box or, you know, you, you've got, you know, multiple, multiple information, multiple keys that maybe you have and your, your, your relatives have, or your lawyer has, or, you know, there are all sorts of different strategies there. Uh, so, you know, there are all these different kinds of levels of, of strategy, depending upon uh, the amount of Bitcoin that you would have. So, you know, these, these, these harbor wallets are sort of the middling uh, level of security. And uh, so what they do is they allow for the, uh, the keys to be on the hardware wallet and not on the computer, you know, so you can have a situation where on the computer um, you're communicating to the internet and all that sort of stuff. But no matter what sort of terrible things are happening on the computer, it won't be able to access your keys here. Uh, you can connect to the computer and you can do things. Basically, basically what happens is there's a transaction, you know, we've talked about transactions. So uh, a transaction will be created, you know, will, will be created and this, this this smart this this uh, hardware wallet basically has the keys with which it can sign uh, such a transaction, 
and then the side transaction can be used and uh, without you know basically holding those the public uh, holding the private key here in the harbor wallet. Um, so that's sort of the basic idea is that you know you can have the, the transaction coming in and the sign transact sign transact sign transaction coming out. Um, that's fine. And so then, you know, use your computer to distribute them, uh, uh, publish them or whatever. Um, but basically, uh, the keys stay on the hardware wallet. So effectively, you're, you're, uh, you are the full um, possessor of those keys, no matter yes. where you are. You're not so, relying on a third-party service to host the keys for you or even generate the keys on your behalf. Right. The risk is, is you, <laughs> you, know, if you, well, if you yeah, know. somehow aren't maintaining, you know, <laughs> the information you need to regenerate, you know, the information and get access to this. You know, there's a there's a passcode uh, involved here uh, and uh, pin. And uh, there's also a number of uh, words when you set these things up, uh, which you can put in your safe deposit box, a list of like, you know, 12 or 20 depends, uh, where basically you can regenerate all the uh, private and public keys from that list of words. And, uh, you know, uh, if you if you for for some reason uh, don't put in your safety box and and, uh, it burns up somewhere and you just, you know, don't have access to those words anymore and you forget your pin, you're you know, it's your dead meat. So. Uh, so, you know, there's a risk with regard to uh, having control. But then again, if you yield that control to uh, Coinbase, there's a risk there as well. Um, now, Coinbase also has a service called the Vault. And again, for people who really don't want to bother with all this, you know, you know some service where they're trying to really be super protective of, of high amounts of Bitcoin, too. So, you know, you know, I mean, it's, it's just... Uh, it's it's if you don't know that much, you know, I'd use a service. If you if you want to learn more, eventually I'd encourage that so you get more control. Uh, but maybe play a little round before you really put a lot in here because uh, you may make some mistakes initially. So um, what's the uh, what's the name of that hardware wallet? Oh, this one. This is a Trezor. Is a, Trezor. I'll put the uh, I'll put the, the link into the show notes uh, at the bottom. There are a number think, of them. Uh, Trezor, Ledger. Uh, uh, there's another one, too. That's uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it'll be cool for people to take a look at what the, what they what they can offer. Here's, here's another one, uh, Keep Key, that was given to me in a conference. I still haven't opened it. But... Oh, that's a big one. Well, it's not. I mean, it's just, oh, the that's box. just the box. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just open it now. But, uh... No, I think I think you know that's that's very cool. And one one of the things that um, you know I wanted to also talk about with regards to. The, not just the decentralization aspect of it, mm-hmm. but also the you know anonymity, right? Mm-hmm. So, why don't you explain to us a little bit about you know your identification when it comes to becoming uh, a participant? Oh, there you here's go. What, oh, that looks, here's that, what was that, inside. Not bad. So it's, it's, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll get the links from you after the show, so we can uh, put them in the description. But uh, yeah, I want to understand a little bit about the an- anonymous aspect of it. Right. Okay. Because when you are on, when you participate on the network, you don't have to reveal who you are. Yeah, it's it's what you call pseudonymous, um, which means that uh, there are public keys that sort of represent who you are, addresses, and uh, this is when you move Bitcoin from one place to the next, from one person to the next. Really, what you're doing is you're moving it from one address to another address. Or again, you could be in a state where maybe multiple people need to release it. You know, I was talking about all the complex sorts of things, two of three, and you know, all sorts of different things that the scripting language can uh, allow you to do. But let's just take the simple case where you're moving 
Bitcoin from person A to person B, just the simplest transaction. Well, this is done between addresses. And so that address is a public key. Now, one thing that's very interesting is that uh, Bitcoin has this really interesting approach where it uses what's called a hierarchical deterministic wallet, which means that uh, from an initial set of words, I mentioned these words, these uh, that you can regenerate all your keys from. Well, there are these words that you, you know, and again, you note them down and you put them in your uh, safe deposit box. Um, these words basically are seeds for the, uh, the, the generation, uh, uh, sort of your initial entropy um, to, to an, uh, generate these keys in a deterministic fashion. So, in fact, you aren't really rolling dice or anything. It's like, you know, you're rolling dice to generate those initial words. That's the initial sort of randomness. And from that, uh, you are generating uh, a number of keys in this hierarchical uh, fashion. So uh, there, there, there's this way of generating uh, a multitude of these keys, and, and they can be sort of related in their various silos, uh, which is sort of interesting too. So there's all sorts of interesting features where you have a company where some people sort of have control of these keys and these keys. And I mean, there are also some interesting things, but just basically the point is for an individual is that you have this uh, ability to generate a, a, a number of these public uh, addresses so you aren't using the same address each time. If you were using the same address each time, then a pattern could be identified just by going through the big blockchain and identifying sort of, okay, there's this money coming in, there's this money going out, you know, at that same at one address that doesn't have your name on it, but it's just the point is, well, if you figure out maybe one transaction that does involve you, well, you can sort of figure out a bunch of things. So people generally will try to protect their privacy, uh, you know, I mean, say you just don't want people to know your salary. I mean, you know, if you're being paid by a company, you just don't want to pe you know, people to know your salary, I mean, basic privacy. So, um, you know, the point is to have a multitude of these addresses so that, uh, and, and that's what a hierarchical deterministic wallet will give you is this, this ability to generate multiple addresses and uh, that people can't really tell, they can't really, if they do it right, there are some, you know, stipulations in which these use, but if you do it right, these, these addresses aren't, um, uh, addresses that can be related to one another. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So I feel like there, there's this tree that's being generated. And from that tree, there's this, you know, the seed that you mentioned is something to sort of kick off the, yes. the that process. And once that process is kicked off, then that can be associated with a particular transaction and the particular identity. And a lot of, um, you know, back and forth happens between that process, right? Yes. And that sort of gets uh, imprinted onto the ledger. And, and, and what's sort of interesting, I just as an aside, is that, you know, the pseudonym is sort of cool because, in fact, if you think about it, you can have a situation where, say, say government starts using it. And, and you, here you are with tax money, you've, you contribute, and you want to make sure there's no corruption, and you want to make sure that the money that you have given in taxation is going to the right people, <laughs> you know, that they're really using it to, you know, build roads or whatever it is, um, you know. What's interesting is you could imagine that uh, governments could be very transparent by identifying the particular wallets that they, or the addresses uh, that they're using and just stick with those addresses. And um, uh, then citizens can be, you know, sort of the openness that allows for citizens to really check to make sure there's no uh, uh, funky stuff going on, you know. Do you think that could also be applied to the election? Oh, too dangerous to touch. <laughs> too dangerous to touch. I think, I think yeah. you oh, oh, here's, the, here's, here's the Chinese uh, address here. And, oh, no, I'm not asking. Uh, 
I'm not gonna, I, I, you know, communist, I should say rather than Chinese, the CCCP, Chinese Communist Party, be specific. Right. <laughs> just not to get in any trouble here, but, you know, I mean, I, just as an example. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you just mentioned the government and, you know, definitely, you know, we always hear about uh, malplay and, and uh-huh. all of those things. So, you know, definitely having some, some uh, elements of the blockchain Yes. be used to verify transactions. Oh, I am the one who voted. This is me. Yes. This is my identity, right? I think that can have huge impacts. Oh, oh, with regard to voting and stuff, yeah, there are all sorts of, there, there are people who are trying to sort of incorporate um, either through a separate cryptocurrency or, you know, I, I think, you know, I think my personal opinion is that a lot of these, tech, there's a lot of interesting technology that can be uh, sort of anchored into the Bitcoin core, uh, for security purposes, I think, you know, military sort of things, I mean, uh, all sorts of things can be uh, using, can start using the Bitcoin blockchain for various things. I mean, IoT, you know, uh, there are ways of uh, like in blocking Bitcoin, there's a nice little section where it talks about how you can, uh, uh, I mean, one one issue actually just came up in our, our last company, you know, the, where we work together, where, uh, you know, you basically have a situation where, uh, okay, um, you have a certificate that you're, you know, that you're, you're saying is represents you. And when you're communicating with your uh, internet, uh, your IOT device, and what if you want to uh, change that something's come up and you want to uh, alert the IOT devices to the new state, uh, you could do the revocation, but you know, there's also, I mean, it's sort of a, a bit of a, I don't know, it's just not completely satisfactory to my mind. And, and there are ways of doing it with, with, with sort of communicating through the blockchain where you could uh, alert uh, the IOT device as to that change of state. And uh, so it would know to not trust the old certificate, but trust the new certificate. So I, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting sort of applications and, and with voting too, you know, uh, perhaps there, there are ways of using the blockchain, uh, uh, anchoring in what, what you're doing with the blockchain to uh, uh, enable uh, some uh, really unanticipated things. Yeah, no, I think you're the, the, the breadth of, um, crypto not just applies to currency I think once people start to get into you know I think the what they'll probably do and this is how it worked for me when I started to learn a bit more about the, the crypto industry and this in this space in general is you sort of look at Bitcoin and you sort of understand okay everyone knows about Bitcoin and that's sort of your entry point but then you start to realize oh wait a second I mean Bitcoin is just one application of crypto on the blockchain you can have so many things uh using this everything from as you said voting to supply chain management iot um other uh fancy security mechanisms that you can use um to because at the end of the day it's a ledger right and the ledger is used to for record keeping purposes checks and balances and it's about how do we maintain those ledgers as accurate and as verifiable as possible right and yep. I, I, I sort of this sort of brings me to my next question, which is about the verifiability of these transactions, right? And I'm sure people have heard things about proof of stake and consensus and what have you. Can you just provide? I know, and things can get a bit hairy when you sort of go into these sort of topics. Yes. But just provide a little bit of a of a sort of a, an ex- explanation about what does it mean to have a transaction verified and what certain techniques can you use to verify these transactions? 
Okay. And my biases will, will, will show in this because, again, I've, I'm very Bitcoin-focused, right. which right. is uh, Bitcoin uses proof of work. And so uh, in a lot of ways, I'm sort of la-la-la with regard to a lot of the crypto, other cryptocurrency efforts because I just, from the outset, I just don't think that they're uh, that interesting. Most of them. I mean, some of them I, I do pay attention to. But uh, um, so, you know, I don't really delve into so much of that knowledge because actually I just don't think it's going to fly. So, but uh, I will explain the Bitcoin part. And uh, also, I just want to touch up on one thing you said in the last thing with regard to uh, supply chain. I think, you know, there's one uh, person I knew from the uh, San Francisco Bitcoin dev who helped found something called SKU chain, SKU chain, SKU chain, chain, and I believe that's the name of the company. And uh, they were trying to do that very thing, sort of follow, uh, follow the, uh, um, I mean, that's a very interesting thing, you know, to be able to track uh, a, a product from where it's, it's, you know, made to where it's sold and uh, make sure, you know, like with pharmaceuticals or something like this, you know, it's very important to kind of make sure that, you know, there's not any funny business going on in between. So, uh, and, and, and also, I mean, it's sort of interesting because in terms of ethical, ethical uh, payment or ethical uh, purchases, like say you just want to give a tip to somebody who, who like uh, made this dress that you bought for your wife, you know, and you, you know, she's in the middle of India somewhere and you just say, well, she did such a great job here. I want to know who she is or somehow be able to give her a tip instead of all these middlemen, you know? And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how that affects uh, sort of also the, eth you know, m making sure that what you are buying is ethically created, not by any sort of form of uh, slave labor, for example, or, or debt peonage, that sort of thing. So, um, I, anyway, that, I'm sort of excited about the kinds of things that that will offer. Uh, sort of a, another tangent we I, we won't go down, but I just want to mention that. <laughs> um, back to proof of work. Um, with regard to verifying uh, a block in a blockchain, um, Bitcoin uses something called proof of work. Now, other other cryptocurrencies will use something else, proof of stake, uh, where it depends on how many of the coin you have and and it gives you a certain weighting with regard to how you participate in the verification each time. And you can delegate. Some of them have delegation models where you can delegate that. So, you know, you don't have to do it yourself all the time, but you delegate to somebody else to do it. Uh, you know, I, my, my knowledge is a bit sketchy on those things again, cause I just don't, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm just not so interested in that, but, but proof of work with regard to Bitcoin is uh, sort of the really, you know, what Bitcoin is, is a bunch of different technologies that kind of came together and somehow fit together and worked. And proof of work was a very important element of this. I mean, because, you know, yeah, how do you verify? And uh, now, uh, as I said before, the, the, there are computers that are running these, these, simple, uh, these simple programs to uh, compete to in order to solve a problem. Now, this problem is a very... Uh, simple problem. It's just uh, taking some information and changing uh, a little bit, a few of the bits here, uh, and and then generating a hash. So each time you generate a hash, you check to see like how many zeros there are at the end. Okay, you know, randomly speaking, you know, it could be a zero or one. So you know, you have a half a half chance of a zero one at the end. But uh, what chance do you have of a zero zero? Well, that's one quarter. Uh, zero, 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 that's one eighth. And so you can see that, you know, if you really wanted to have something that was one in a million, you'd figure out how many zeros you need. And then you'd say, okay, everyone start running your engines and, and, and let's see who gets the first hash that has so many zeros and then you win. So it takes some time because there are, you know, a million people, you know, you need to try a million times, you know, on average to get this. And so uh, as, 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 uh, 
No. What happens is as more and more people get involved, it happens faster and faster. But you still want to keep it every 10 minutes. So what you do is you make it more and more difficult. So you add more and more zeros to the uh, to the problem. So uh, I guess the point now where, I mean, the amount of power there, it's really able to uh, withstand. I, my understanding is sort of at the level now where really the, the security can withstand state actor level uh, attacks. Wow. That's, uh, that's really cool because I feel like you're increasing the complexity uh, upon each iteration because you said you're adding zeros and you're making it probabilistically that's much more harder to uh, to break effectively. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so what's, what's happened too is there's the sophistication and this is why it's so professional is that, you know, initially you just had your normal CPU type computer then people started using GPUs uh, and that's faster. And then uh, ASICs. I actually knew a guy uh, in uh, in New York City. We were like two of us in this one meetup. You know, we, sometimes there were three of us. <laughs> you know, again, very few people involved. It. He 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 like was the first one to come out with ASIC, uh, the uh, Avalon, and uh, uh, he was a big star at the May twenty thousand thirteen or twenty thirteen uh, conference. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew him when he was just nobody. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, but but you know um so you know the asics are where this hardware is sort of geared to specifically do that particular software application uh so it's, yeah it's, it's more of a it's a more of a hardware implementation of right. whatever you're trying to do right exactly yeah yeah i i think you know the the verifiability is still um there's so many methods around it and i know that there are different blockchains like ethereum and and uh esoteric ones that are trying to somehow scale um, the verifiability aspect of it because it does take time. It does take resources and all those things, right? And so the, the question is, you know, how how much resources do we actually need? Because, you know, in order to verify a transaction, personally, I don't think my laptop will be able to handle it. You know, it's, it's really about having those Bitcoin miners out there to really do all of the, the heavy lifting, right? So well, let's quick. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, you can verify it. It's just a matter of whether you can be the verifier of record. Uh, you can verify it. Everyone can verify it. It's over, you know, plain view. And you have a, you, everyone has the power to be able to verify all the transactions, make, the, make sure they're, you know, they're upright citizens of the uh, uh, Bitcoin transaction community. <laughs> But uh, you know uh, the the mining is really what's what's uh, what. what uh, now now you know, there are also there are certain efforts uh, with regard to like one thing that I, I you know I hear you saying a little bit is oh my god there are all these resources put into this mining and so some people talk about that well the thing is that people have to realize is that uh, it's very important to have a good money and when you don't have a good money you're going to be wasting a lot of resources for not having a good money. And, uh, and also the monies that preceded, you know, the good monies preceding Bitcoin were like gold and stuff where maybe, you know, you're doing all sorts of terrible things to the, to the landscape. And so, you know, uh, there, there, sure, there's going to be uh, resources that are, that are behind the power of, of this money. Uh, but then you also have to think about, you know, it's not just sort of a good money really has these benefits with regard to making sure the economy goes well and that the resources aren't wasted out there. And so uh, people should be cognizant of, of that aspect of it. And moreover, I think Andreas had, Antonopoulos had a, an interesting video where he talked about how um, it actually helps uh, with regard. Uh, there's a video uh, where he talks about energy uh, being uh, 
used in remote locations for uh, for for powering Bitcoin, and 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 the fact that you can do that at a remote location means that you don't have to uh, you you don't have to you don't have to move the, the energy, you just move the Bitcoin. And there's sort of an efficiency with regard to actually getting something. Oh, I can't remember exactly, but I shouldn't talk about it because I don't remember it exactly. But he also talked about sort of uh, the ability to sort of ramp up these these energy uh, plants in a way where, or, or be able to smooth out their, uh, like if they have wa- um, demand that sort of wavers and you want to, you know, smooth it out, uh, Bitcoin, you know, using the excess power to generate Bitcoin sort of allows you to do things with energy plants that uh, you might not have been able to do before in a more uh, uh, more uh, environmentally friendly way. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I don't know much enough about that to, to tell you anymore, but uh, I would recommend Andreas Antonopoulos' uh, video on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting topic to, I think in and, of it, in and of itself, it's an interesting topic because there's so many, I don't know, um, I don't know, initiatives out there to really figure out a very um, efficient way of doing these sort of uh, mining operations. And I know in China, I think, you know, there was a documentary on uh, mining farms in, you know, warehouses where they're effectively setting up machine by machine by machine, you know, just a whole stack of them um, lined uh, next to each other to really harvest uh, Bitcoin, right? So that's been an interesting uh, development that's been happening in, in parts of these uh, parts of the world. So, you know, with that, I want to understand a little bit about the, you know, Bitcoin obviously is the first currency that sort of really became popular. But recently, there's been a lot of um, forking, I suppose, or uh, just, I guess, okay, maybe before we get into other uh, alternatives of Bitcoin, when someone says Bitcoin got forked, right? What does that actually mean? Okay, so in the open source software world, uh, what that means is that uh, you know there there are various projects um, that are very you know there's so many open source projects that people uh, uh, are working on that uh, uh, that are uh, done in a way where basically. Um, everyone can communicate, can can contribute as as peers. There generally is a, a somebody who is uh, responsible for starting the project and may lead the project. You know, like Linus Torvalds leads the project on Linux, uh, which is an open source project that's very famous. Um, but there's uh, he also has created Git, the Git software that everyone uses for source control. Uh, that's another open source project. Uh, um, I'm, you know, there are some open source projects that aren't uh, aren't uh, weren't created by Linus Torvalds. <laughs> Uh, there, there, are just you know countless number of projects, uh, uh, open source projects, and what, what you generally have somebody like Linus Torvalds who will sort of guide the project and sort of control the changes that are happening. You know, they uh, and and the rest. It may be a, a number of people who are involved, sort of to uh, maintain the project. Uh, you know, it really depends a lot on your contributions and the respect you gain from from those contributions. Uh, you know, the quality of those contributions and all that. Uh, and uh, with Bitcoin, for example, there is an initial uh, creator who uh, is uh, uh, no one knows who who that person was. Uh, he transferred uh, his his leadership to uh, Gavin and uh, Gavin Andreessen, uh, and then uh, ultimately there have been a number of other core developers who've, who've taken over that leadership now. Um, so. It could be that there's a disagreement that happens. And so when there's a disagreement, and this is what happened several years ago with regard to the, that block size that I was talking about, you know, some people want to increase the block size. Some people wanted to keep it, you know, uh, keep it, uh, keep it pretty much 
the same or, or not too much uh, bigger um, and, and, and then have fees that would be, uh, you, know, have, you know, have a market mechanism because there's so scarcity in the block. Uh, part of the mining process would be that the transactions would also pay uh, fees that would match sort of how uh, what the price is to get into the block. You know, um, and as, as it gets more, there's more and more demand to get in the block. Of course, these fees will go up. And in fact, that's a way, to, uh, an additional way that the miners are uh, rewarded. And, you know, in addition to the Bitcoins that are sort of gradually added to the system, as I said, asymptotically, there's all, there are also these fees. Okay, so anyway, there was this big debate about the blockchain size. And so some people went this way, some people went that way. They took the code and they started working on it separately. So changes over here were different from changes over here. So you have these two distinct uh code repositories where, where the code is, is, and people will run this software or, or they'll run this software. And so you have a system where basically uh, there are these going to be these two different um, versions of Bitcoin that are, uh, that are out there in the world. And they may have a shared history, but once that fork happens, uh, they will be distinct. So how does one decide which fork to go with? I mean, is it believe, is it based on the principles that you've adhered to that you believe that, you know, this fork, this new fork that has just occurred is something that I'm more aligned with and therefore I'm going to continue trading. But at the same time, I feel like you still need a community behind it because you can easily fork Bitcoin, but if you don't have the support behind you, then you don't really have a good basis to really spawn uh, a new uh, a, a divergence from that mainline. So I'm just trying to understand what is what has been the history like for Bitcoin specifically. You know, with all of these forks that have taken place, um, have they been legitimate enough for people to have a mass following behind these forks? Okay, so so yeah, you know, I, I still remember way back when, again, you know, it seems like, you know, decades ago, but it was just, uh, what, nine years ago, 2011, uh, you heard, you started hearing, well, probably 2012 when I heard about this, but it was like, there was some, somebody who set up a website where you could actually just do a one-click uh, fork of Bitcoin, and you could name it BerryCoin, <laughs> Casey Coin, <laughs> you'd have your own coin, it was just, you know, hey, <laughs> We've, you know, just that easy to fork, right? So, um, but then, you know, you're just trying to convince your friends, hey, let's use BerryCoin. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> right, you right. know, it, it's hard to get any kind of momentum going. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a problem. So now the the one, that, the fork that happened several years ago was much more serious because there were, you know, groups on either side that people knew. And of course, uh, for, for, I can only tell sort of, I think, well, I mean, I can talk about sort of what went into my thinking and my think what went into my thinking was, you know, who are the people, you know, do, you know, do I trust technically the people that are involved with the fork on this one side or the other side? You know, I do in terms of software, in terms of just your, your basic coding uh, and uh, cryptography and just general knowledge about all the, all the bells and whistles that go into Bitcoin. That's number one. Number two is uh, thinking about it economically. I mean, you know, there, I think, you know, there were certain different theories about what makes for good money, which, 
you know, I have my own ideas about. And so that will factor into the kind of uh, decision I make. And I, I think that the other fork was misguided in its understanding of what makes for good money. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion. Um, I may be wrong, but again, uh, that's how it went into what, what, what went into my choice. And then there's also sort of the, the un, un, ineffable sort of, you know, the character of the people involved. I mean, there, there are, are character questions as well. So, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of different levels to it. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I feel like there is a lot of debate, and I think it's a healthy debate to really think about the future of not just Bitcoin, but all of these uh, manifestations on, on the blockchain because mm -hmm. it is software, right? And software can change dramatically and it can change very easily as well. Um, and you, and, but at the same time, there's always a community behind uh, these implementations, like, as you mentioned, Linux, right? And people have their own beliefs about where the the roadmap is for Linux and where it should go. And others are either opposed to that or they're aligned with it, right? And I feel like it's always good to have a healthy discussion about uh, the roadmap of these currencies, right? Yes. And so from your personal opinion, you know, do you see, where do you see Bitcoin going uh, in the next few years, right? Do you feel like where it's headed now is correct or do you see the, there's need for change? Oh, I'm very happy with where Bitcoin is now. And I, and, and again, I think there's a really, a lot of exciting work that I think is being done in this layer too. I was talking about Lightning Network is being- Yeah, go ahead. Why, why don't you explain a little bit about what Lightning Network is? Okay, I will. Um, it's, it's, it's uh, think of Bitcoin as sort of this, this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, you can think of it as sort of this core sphere of Bitcoinness that you know is just sort of there, and okay, we you know we talk about that, and you just assume it exists, and then we have this second layer that's sort of this shell around Bitcoin that is doing some other stuff that's that's, that's sort of ba that's based on the Bitcoin core technology. And uh, why would you do that? Now, there are other things that you might do. You know, again, we've talked about other sorts of different interesting things you could do by tapping into the Bitcoin core uh, or the blockchain, just using it as a timestamping service. For example, uh, you, you do all sorts of different things as a layer two. Now, what Lightning Network does and, and what it's trying to address is the very expense that we're talking about. When you have a block that where you're charging fees for these transactions, uh, you know, part of the whole fascination with Bitcoin was sort of this idea that maybe, you know, when I started getting interested, you know, when I did this project back in 97, 99, um, um, I was working with uh, something called DigiCash, implementing it with DigiCash, uh, David Chom's uh, technology with regard to uh, micropayments at the time, because we didn't think at that time that uh, credit cards would be something that people use online readily, <laughs> you know, for security reasons, but that's that was a mistake. But micro, you know, the, uh, David Chom had this idea uh, with DigiCash, and there was there were other, other efforts. I remember first virtual, Millicent, these sorts of things, and, and uh, there were ways of sort of trying to make for small payments on online. Uh, and the problem with credit cards is, of course, you've got per each transaction, you may have like, you know, 40 cents uh, as a charge in addition to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, there's this, you can't really charge this five cents because the transaction cost is greater than the amount that you're charging. So it really is hard to have these small payments. Now, again, with Bitcoin, uh, that was the case initially that we would have these very small, you know, it'd be very cheap to send, uh, to have these transactions because there wasn't this fee. Uh is negligible, but uh, now it's not so negligible and it's getting more and more expensive as time goes on. So, you know, what do you do to pay for the cup of coffee without having to spend, you know, uh, an inordinate amount in your transaction cost? So, um, 
and and moreover, what, how do you how do you make them more instantaneous? Because with Bitcoin, there is this 10, 10 minute average wait between the the blocks being created, and each time those blocks are created, that's sort of added verification. But most times, people will, for various reasons, want multiple confirmations, maybe two confirmations, or in a case of a very serious uh, large purchase, you know, six confirmations or or more. If you're you know buying a house or a car, you know, you probably want to wait. A, few more maybe even so that takes time you know it's an hour or something right and here you are waiting for your cup of coffee okay so so lightning network is a way to address that it's meant to be fast it's meant to be uh uh, cheap with regard to the the transaction fees Uh, uh, you know you you know there's something different that happens we'll talk about and uh uh, yeah so and 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 small you want it to be able to you know deal with these really small small payments so um, what it is, it's a way, uh, you can think of it as a way, what happens is basically you have a, a funding transaction to start with, with between two people, uh, which is sort of like what I was saying, two of three, but it's two of two. So you move the money into a state where only both people have to okay uh, the money being moved out of the state. And that's called a channel. And so you fund it with a certain amount of Bitcoin, two people. And then at the end, you uh, close out this uh, channel and you need the cooperation of two people to do that. Now, there's a transaction that goes in the blockchain for the first initial funding transaction. There's a transaction that goes in for the closing transaction. However, what's really interesting is that this is kind of like a bar tab. So, you know, if you're going to a bar, maybe, you know, you go there, you don't pay with a credit card each time. Maybe the person there knows you enough that they say, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, you can put it on the tab and the, the guy will do, the bartender will do that and, uh, and you pay at the end. And so rather than paying, you know, uh, twice or three times or whatever, um, you pay just once. And, you know, there are other, I think online, I've seen other efforts at like trying to do credit uh, transaction uh, consolidation to save money. You know, uh, you know, there are approaches that just basically try to do that, you know, to save on the transaction costs with credit cards. Now with, with Bitcoin, it's the same sort of idea. You know, if you have a one funding transaction and then one closing transaction, and you could somehow do transactions in between, moving the money back and forth in this channel, uh, so maybe each person contributes one Bitcoin. And so the, the channel has two Bitcoins inside of it. And you can start saying, OK, I'm going to pay you a tenth of a Bitcoin for this service. And I'm going to pay you a, two tenths for this. And then, oh, I'm going to pay you, you know, uh, half of Bitcoin for what you just did for me. And so you can imagine between these two people, you have this relationship and you have this channel whereby you can move the money and somehow... Uh, not have to have a, a, a real full transaction in Bitcoin that costs money because the the funding clo- transaction in the beginning and the closing transaction costs money. Right. So what is done is that you create these sort of transactions that um, that are that are signed and uh, each person has control of in such a way that the, there's a bit of game theory that happens. So there's there are incentives that are put in place so that you know as you're creating these transactions. Uh, moving money back and forth between the two two people in this channel, um, there's an agreement with regard to how you get from state A to or state you know state of time t equals one to state time equals two to time equal three where where the Bitcoin is moving here and there and there are these new transactions that are being revealed and shared and 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 held um, and um, and incentives to not use the old transactions so it's only the new transactions that can be used but they aren't used. In the happy path, they're never used. It's just you sort of are, are giving this structure so that there's this game theory that happens. That So at the very end, when you have that closing transaction, you have the incentive to actually have a closing transaction that matches all the transactions that you've had in between time. 
Right. Okay. And so it's, it's it's really fun. I mean, the details are really fun to, to go through because you're using the scripting language and there there are time delays and there there's you know punishment if you you know if you if you do it the wrong you know if you if you if you try to rip off the other person you know and they can actually get all your money. <laughs> it's like there are all these incentives with regard to you know if, if people don't play by the rules, but if you play the by the rules, you have the opening transaction, you have the transactions that move back and forth. And within the capacity, the two bit two Bitcoin capacity of this channel, and then a closing transaction. And what 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 once you can do that, you can then set up this network of these channels so that you can have not just two people, but you have this network of these two people, and then this person is connected to this other person, so they got a channel, and then you got the whole network of channels, and you're using Tor network, and you're doing all sorts of interesting things, and eventually you can connect to the guy who has the cap coffee shop. <laughs> And so at the end of the day, basically, you can pay for your coffee and you can get your coffee without having to wait for an hour. <laughs> and maybe play, you know, I, I've, I've actually, when I first installed the Lightning Network, I was able to play this little game of Space Invaders for like five cents. It's like, wow. Or maybe it's even half a cent. It was just like, you know, it's really small payment. So I think it offers a lot of interest uh, there as well. You know, the fact that it's fast, blah, blah, blah. So, no, I think that's a, that's really fascinating because... You know, I know that there are significant transaction costs associated with just, you know, if you just remove the Lightning Network away from it, I mean, just to buy, as you said, buy a cup of coffee, go to the store, right? You know, these are very simple transactions that we take for granted every day. You know, we use our credit card, but there's a lot of intricacies and complexities behind using Bitcoin. And I think the Lightning Network has this ability to really um, democratize uh, Bitcoin for everyone now so that everyone can access this, right? And I, I want to sort of dig deeper in a little bit about how these transactions, like, well, not dig deeper, but, you know, if I was someone who had a Bitcoin wallet, for example, and I have money stored on that, how would I convert that Bitcoin, whatever I have, into a, uh, a transaction that is associated with a purchase. So I go into a coffee shop. How do I use the Bitcoin that I have to really buy that uh, that cup of coffee? Now, does it get converted into USD or the currency of that coffee shop wherever it's located? And then sort of there's like a, a multiple transactional process that takes place or is it Bitcoin or Bitcoin? Okay. So let me let me start by just saying one thing, and that is just the obvious that Bitcoin is very volatile right now. The price is go, you know, is 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 you know, I mean, it started from nothing, right, and it's going to some place. And that uh, there's the second French word which I was dying to use uh, called uh, from my economics training, <laughs> uh, the word tatonement, and it's just again a fancy French word, but all it needs means is uh, fumbling around for price. So eventually, you know, there's this process that takes place whereby we move from point A to point B, and eventually, I I believe that the price of Bitcoin, uh, volatile as it is now, will eventually be very boring. And uh, so at that point, I think uh, there'll be less of a need to uh, you know. Right now, when people hold on to Bitcoin, say you know they really don't, they're you know I mean they're just sort of you know they. They just are trying to use it. You know, it, it's there's a bit of a dissuasion because, you know, it's just they're, they're, the price is change, changing so much. Uh, and so, they don't, you know, that's a risk that people have to uh, 
deal with. So as you said, you know, maybe there's some people who would want to actually translate that back into U.S. dollars right away. You know, just use Bitcoin as some means to uh, to take, take a payment, but then immediately uh, move it back into U.S. dollars. So, yeah, there's there, you know, there are going to be people who do that. Uh, uh, but uh, let's take the case of uh, just somebody who is using Bitcoin and sort of the Bitcoin, let's say the Bitcoin is now, you know, it's a Bitcoin economy and people are happy to hold on to Bitcoin and exchange Bitcoin. It's just another money. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, again, if, if, if you want to, if you if you if you do want to translate to dollars again, you probably have your Coinbase account and you move it and then you, you don't, you know, use your exchange there on Bitcoin to to uh, sell your Bitcoin and and and, uh, and then have USD that uh, then you having your bank account as USD. So, and, and, you know, people use uh, other, uh, there's a, you know, there's some sorts of uh, uh, coins that are, that are uh, meant to represent value of a dollar. So maybe they'll use that. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, if you're really being conservative, you, you, you know, there's something called tether, which people use, but uh, if you're really being conservative, you probably just want to have it in your bank account as USDs. But okay, and, and assuming that you just want to be in the, you just jumping into the Bitcoin economy, you just don't care if it's all Bitcoin. And so you're just using Bitcoin as Bitcoin. Um, there, uh, what happens is there, there are a couple of things. One is uh, if you're just using Bitcoin itself without Lightning Network, it's just a simple payment from person A to person B. There's a transaction that takes place. There's a, uh, you know, there's an address uh, that you can represent with a QR code. And so uh, say, you know, you have a wallet that's tied in with your Bitcoin and you can you can read the QR code. And so you get the, the address to send it to. And so, you know, you, you know you're you know, I went to a coffee shop in, in, in uh, Palo Alto, California. Um, I was so thrilled to buy my first latte there uh, many years ago. Um, and um, they had just a little QR code that was there uh, just on this little stand. And so I just, you know, um, use that address to uh, uh to to send my uh, there's the address i sent my bitcoin to and i was able to get you know they were able to see that it arrived and they they gave me the coffee uh now with lighting network it's a little bit different instead of payment you have their what's called an uh, invoice and uh so um uh there's a little bit of a difference there with regard to how that all works um there's a there there are ways with bitcoin to have some sort of sense of uh there's one uh one uh way of doing something like this but you know just that's without getting into detail with bitcoin there's really just this payment from one person to the next uh for a simple transaction with lightning network there is an invoice that uh, you can create and uh and so it's a little bit a little bit different got it got it that makes sense yeah i feel like there's a lot of more um merchants nowadays who are accepting bitcoin because not just because of lightning but just because of so many um, other factors where they believe that uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are sort of going to be the main, uh, well, not the main, but at least one of the key players. Um, and especially it's important because as we become more globalized, you know, having Bitcoin on yourself and being able to use that no matter where you are, there's no exchange rate per se with any other currencies. I think you've really universalized a lot of the transactions that you can do, um, merchant to merchant and consumer to consumer. 
Yes. I mean, you know, just think of like all the, all, all sorts of uh, business models you can have uh, organizing a company where you're paying everyone in Bitcoin and not having to worry about all the details of foreign exchanges and stuff. It's just, you know, everyone's happy taking their Bitcoin and they then they uh, they use it however they would like. But it's just this 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 easy way to uh, to uh, remunerate your employees or, or whom you're working with paying for goods and services in a mutual way. I want to, um, you know, I, I think we're sort of hitting the half 90 minute mark here, but I, I'm really enjoying the conversation here. But I want to sort of uh, con- sort of switch gears a little bit and f- figure out a little bit about your uh, technical background, because I know that you've done a lot of um, playing around and development. I think you started in Java and a few other languages as well. What about, you know, with the Bitcoin stuff that you're doing at the moment, I know that you're delving into a lot of languages, um, everything from Scala to Rust and Go. What um, things do you see in in that space? You know, why um, do you feel that it's important to explore a lot of these languages and what they can offer to the the community? Well, I would say, you know, Apart from Bitcoin, I mean, you know, Bitcoin is really my focus. And so, in fact, one way I'm sort of learning languages is to implement uh, Bitcoin libraries Mm. using these languages. So I'm learning Bitcoin, but I'm also learning those languages. And so I've done a little bit on with Rust and and, uh, Scala so far on those. And I plan to do it with Go and and Elixir and all sorts of different things. And just, you know, it's a way of learning. And, and, you know, with after you learn from programming Bitcoin, uh, the book that uh, Jimmy Song did, I mean, it's sort of an interesting you, you know, you, you get you, you get a knowledge of how to do it all from scratch. And and there are implementations like there's a Go implementation of Bitcoin, which uh, now that I know Go, I can look at and understand with Mimblewimble. I really want to uh, understand so that and uh, be able to contribute if I really got interested. And so they I try, so happens it was in Rust. And so I, that's when I realized, OK, maybe I should learn Rust. So, you know, that's when I learned Rust. But I am not so interested in Mimblewimble anymore, but I'm interested in Rust. <laughs> and um, anyway, I think. Uh, Let's see. So to answer your question, um, I think one thing that, again, apart from Bitcoin, again, Bitcoin sort of a medium that I, with which I'm learning things right now, uh, apart from my inherent interest in Bitcoin. But just forget Bitcoin for a moment. I came, uh, you know, I was I, I lived in I, I'm originally from San Francisco, but I spent some time in, in Minnesota and uh, their Java, Java, Java. <laughs> you know, I just lived and read Java and then moved to New York City again, Java, 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 and that was fine. And I moved to the Bay Area. And for some reason, I go to these hackathons or, you know, these uh, gatherings, you know, where like, you know, this one, uh, uh, there was a, a project, uh, I don't even know, there are a number of these projects which you go to and you, you just sort of get together with people and then it's like, you know, oh, hi, I can contribute with Java. And it's like, oh, well, we're using Python or Node. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was really not the cool kid on the block anymore, you know, so... I realized, okay, I got to do something. I mean, just apart from anything else, I mean, I just had to learn some other languages to be able to fit in and and and, and, and do some fun things with these other projects, you know, that my you know people were talking about and 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 uh, you know, uh, so so I you know I learned Python and the last job I was working on, I worked I used Python, but uh, I was also had been interested in Scala, and uh, I, I'm super interested in Rust. I really like Rust a lot. Um, and uh, what I find is that also as I go, it's very handy because, you know, there are, there are various uh, technologies you learn and these textbooks will uh, or tutorials will go through 
showing you these new technologies, but they'll tend, you know, some of them will go through it now. Like we just, our reading group, we went through uh, a Go tutorial and then uh, Protobufs and gRPC. Uh, we went through the book called gRPC Up and Running. And uh, what's, what's, you know, I mean, some of those tutorials do try to go through various languages, but oftentimes you'll have a textbook where, you know, it's, it's go. And so, you know, to go through and understand the technology, they're using this particular language. So it's very, you know, it's important to have more of a polyglot approach. I mean, I'm interested in the polyglot approach because I think, you know, uh, distributed service architectures are very interesting. I mean, I still think modularization at the, for, each, for monoliths is very important too, but I think um, you know when you do have distributed service architecture, it's very you know it's very interesting to uh, to, to use the language that's appropriate for whatever you're doing and the various services. Uh, so you know I'm interested in that from that aspect, but I think also just pedagogically, uh, you know, for example, there's this really interesting book that I'm, I I just acquired, uh, uh, paying electronically, not by Bitcoin, <laughs> my old credit card. Um, I, I bought this. Uh, book called Building Git, which is trying to go through the internals of Git. And so I, I think that's sort of fascinating. I was just taking a course on O'Reilly live online training uh, with uh, Venkat, I forget his last name, but super teacher. And he went through some of the uh, internals of, of, of Git. And uh, I, I was fascinated. So I, I bought, I've, I've bought this book and I'm sort of hoping our reading group will go through it. Um, however, it's in Ruby. <laughs> so I don't know Ruby. So, you know, again, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you, you, Part of the learning is is just for fun. I love to learn, but uh, part of it is just because you know, just to be able to go through and learn interesting things. People are using different languages. How how important is it to learn different languages nowadays? I think you know, oh, obviously, right. when when you're growing up, right? You know, you mentioned Java was sort of your bread and butter, but oh, yeah. eventually, you know, you get to be exposed with. Um, languages that are advantageous and disadvantageous uh, disadvantageous between uh those you know those languages but nowadays there's so many out there right so what sort of advice would you give people who are starting to learn languages right why is it important why is what it important? i'm doing is i'm have a little notebook where i'm, I'm like and in fact I, I think there should be a book on this i maybe there's a book out there somewhere but i you know one thing that's sort of something is that all these languages one of the hard parts is they're all you know a lot of them are very similar in some senses, so you know it's easy to pick up the one from you know knowing others. But but that's part of the problem too, is that they're so similar. There are these little differences, and so you know you get back and go back and forth. It's like oh, I have to remember this little detail over here. It's a little bit different, but it's mostly the same. But you know I, I'm sort of putting together a notebook of like okay, here's Elixir, here's Rust, here's you know Go, and and you know the little 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 uh, uh, quirks that each one has a little bit. And I'm just trying to record that. But I, I'm surprised there isn't a book on that already where, you know, you kind of have uh, some 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 reference so you can sort of shift gears from one language to the other. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, if you've been working on this other language for a while and you switch back into a gear with this other language and, uh, you know, you sort of remind yourself, oh, yeah, it's a little bit different in this, this aspect. So, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I think that's... Uh, Part of the challenge is uh, is to be able to uh, uh, deal with those details, but I, I don't know. I think it comes sort of naturally. It's like uh, learning a, a different foreign language. I think I, I uh, you know, I mean French and English. I know French fluently, and uh, went to school there and all that. And uh, 
um, yeah, there are similarities and all that, but uh, you just sort of get in the in the mode. And, and there's this, what's interesting too is I think there's sort of a community. There's a community aspect that's different to each of these languages. You know, closure. They have a very different community from Scala. You know, there's, there's a mentality and there's a sort of an attitude. All sorts of different things that are different between the communities. And so it's really interesting to see the different communities and. Uh, uh, they all have a very a little bit different philosophy, and so I don't know. I just think it, it's sort of much like a, I mean, I was an exchange student, and sort of broaden my horizons. In a lot of ways, learning these different computer languages broadens your horizons because you start to be able to think in different ways. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree because you know, there's, if there was only one universal language, then I think it would be pretty boring. And yeah. I think the fact that there are so many languages available now that people can start to pick up and learn very easily not just buying a book but you know just coding away looking online doing online courses i think it's becoming uh, super important and and obviously very very valuable to people who want to enter the industry because mm-hmm. the more languages you can showcase on your resume and like i've done this and i've done that i think it's become uh i think that's sort of the norm now where a lot of people are uh, uh, testing languages, not just your effective, your Java and your C and your C++, but like Go and Rust and Scala and all of these other languages. And and I I highly recommend doing an open source project. I mean, where you are, you know, showing, I mean, again, you know, initially when you're working with language, like with Rust, I mean, initially you're, you know, <laughs> you're going to go through a learning curve, and and with Rust you're going to go through a big learning curve. Man, it, uh, Go is very simple. Rust is quite a learning curve, um, to my mind. And uh, so go through that learning curve on, uh, by doing an open source project, and you know eventually it'll look better and better, and, and all that. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I I think I agree with that. And uh, the reason I wanted to ask you that question was because you are such a polyglot, and mm-hmm. you you are familiar with. Uh, oh, numerous know. amounts of languages, but you know, I feel like uh, your thought just came back to you. Why don't you go ahead and yeah. say? Okay, so another thing that I think is driving this is, is of course, you know, there there comes a point where uh, concurrency um, becomes uh, a very important thing. Is you know, through my career, uh, it really became something that became more and more important. And I think you know, there's certain languages that are more geared to handling that in a much uh, more sane fashion uh, at compile time. And that's one reason I'm so interested in Rust. There's another language which uh, very few people know about, but I, uh, there, I one one great, a couple of great, really interesting resources for people learning all these things. O'Reilly has a wonderful subscription model where they have uh, uh, online training, live training with teachers who will teach you various languages or technologies. I think that, that's a really good uh, bang for buck. But there's also something I'm starting to play with for learning Elixir. Uh, and also another language, which is called Pony. Uh, Pony is something that's akin to Rust, uh, but it sort of takes it to another degree with regard to concurrency. Uh, and uh, Grox.io is the one place I've seen where they have some uh, some uh, t- uh, uh, teaching on, 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 on Pony. It's a, a very few people... Uh, you know, there's very few resources with regard to Pony yet. But uh, again, I think, you know, uh, my interest there is really with regard to uh, um, uh, making sure that, you know, things are secure and working well and uh, that things are caught at compile time. And, and boy, Rust uh, is wonderful in that respect. What uh, is, is do, would you say that Rust is the language that you're gravi- gravitating towards uh, at this moment in time? Or oh, yes. uh, do, you, do you enjoy Go more? 
I love Go. I mean, you know, in fact, I'm one of the guys in the Rust, uh, you know, again, the Rust thing, I sort of was looking at the thing and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I need help on this, going through this thing. So that's, I, I started a reading group on, on, on Rust, you know, in addition to the Bitcoin reading group, I said, okay, we'll do Rust now too. So we went through two really thick books, you know, Rust Programming Language and uh, uh, Programming Rust, uh, the O'Reilly book. And um, both of those are thick and dense. And uh, we, we went through all these discussions. Every chapter was just full of interesting information and, and, uh, but again, really dense. Uh, and, uh, you learn all sorts of stuff through that. And through a reading group, it's great. Cause then you can really, you know, uh, you think you, you know, it just by reading, but when you discuss it, it's just another level of learning. Um, but one of the guys in the reading group was saying, Oh, you know, uh, go is really cool too. <laughs> and you know, what's the big thing about Russ and go is so cool. And so anyway, he eventually like was recommending that we do the GRPC, uh, stuff, which is really, I think, interesting. And so I'm glad I did, I've done that. And uh, uh, to do that, you need Go. So we started with the Tour of Lang, uh, tour, uh, the tour of Go uh, uh, tutorial. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, so, so simple and easy. And, you know, I, I've gone through a, a book on Go before, but uh, the, uh, just have, going through the tutorial and, and going through some of the uh, examples of GRPC. And um, now I, 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 there's another book I really want to go through, uh, writing... Uh, writing an interpreter in Go and writing a compiler in Go. So if anyone wants oh, to go wow. through these books, uh, please let me know. Um, we, we, we did another one called uh, uh, Netra, uh, NAND, from NAND to Tetris, uh, another uh, sort of where you just go from scratch with regard to NAND gates and you build up a computer that can run Tetris. It's a really, yeah, you know, cool. go to nandtetris.org. Really cool. There's a book and everything. And so we, we've gone through that. I, I love that sort of stuff. So um, again, that's, for me, that was just curiosity. I just wanted, you know, I, I actually had, uh, uh, before economics, I was uh, doing applied physics at Stanford and, and did quantum mechanics for a couple of years there. Uh, and uh, so I know quantum mechanics. I know how a NAND gate kind of works because I was solid state physics. <laughs> and then I was doing Java at the other end. And so it's been fun to kind of learn all the mysteries of all the, the black box in between. And so just in terms of curiosity, it's sort of fun to do that too. Um so, uh, but but I think the 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 the, the need for for working for doing things in uh, current fashion uh, and managing that uh, through a compiler that can check on things that uh, uh, in a more uh, in a ready, uh, more readily than I mean Java has its strengths, but I, I you know um, I think with uh, Rust and with Pony, I think you'll, mm-hmm. you'll you'll you know when security is very important, I think uh, and speed. I think uh, those will. I'm, I'm not sure about Pony how fast it is, but I know Rust is very fast. So and I think that's that's a key, right? Like these languages, they're not. There's no one language that rules them all, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's always going to be advantage. There's going to be good things about the language, and there's going to be not so good things about the language, and that's where other languages uh, sort of have their strengths, right? And this is sort of comes to your point about distributed service architecture, why it's important to have a polyglot environment mm-hmm. and have... To be know, able to independently scale. Yeah, exactly. So you can independently scale, but also when it comes to security, if you need to develop a security service, you choose a language that is more prone to right. developing, those, <laughs> providing those strengths, right? Exactly. And, you know, I wanted to sort of... Um, so have some closing thoughts for you. And and I think for the most part, you know, what you've uh, done over the, the years is really uh, amazing. But the fact that you're continually learning and learning uh, different languages, and I think people need to understand that, you know, once you finish with school and once you finish with college, you know, that's not 
doesn't mean that your learning has ended. I think I think that's just the start of your learning um, experience. And so maybe uh, from your experience, explain to the listeners why you know continuing to learn is so important. Well, I think it sort of goes in both directions in a lot of ways because you know I love to learn just inherently. So I gravitate towards software because, boy, you know, you constantly have to learn. <laughs> and so for me, that's wonderful. That's a challenge and I love it. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I love to, um, I love to, uh, I love that aspect of software. But yeah, it's right. important with software, you know, uh, uh, I just think of what was going on 10 years ago. I mean, um, you learn stuff, you use it, and then, you know, it really, you turn around and there's something new. I mean, it's just how it is. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, software is one example where you, if you really want to be up to date uh, with all the latest technologies, you have to continually, you have to continue to learn. And that's something that people have to come to grips with if they want to enter the industry. And that, I guess, you know, it doesn't go, it, it goes well with software, but other aspects, because, you know, I think a lot of the industry now is, um phasing out monotonous jobs. I think they're all of being, all of them are being monotonous, uh, automated. Um, and I think creativity is where it comes into play now. And I think being creative is a continual learning process. You have to yes. come up with new ideas, be innovative in different areas and spaces. And I think to your point, you know, what you've done um, over the years, learning from Java to different languages and also having interest in Bitcoin, but also alternatives to Bitcoin and just having that sort of growth mindset and learning as much as you can. I think that's val valuable and very important. And sometimes you don't really understand how it'll all fit together. I mean, you know, you kind of look ahead and it doesn't make much sense. But then later on you look back, oh, hey, yeah, it made sense somehow, you know, um, if you follow your interests, I mean, not always, I'm sure, but, you know, at least with my experience, somehow it seems to fit together in some way. Yeah, you sort of uh, join the dots at the end of the day. Tell us about your uh, reading groups before we sort of finish okay. off. What are you, uh, and you can, you can name all the reading groups and I'll put the links into them below or if they want to get in contact with you. But uh, tell us how okay. you got started with your reading groups. Okay, uh, and I'll give you a couple links, and there's there's some links to I create uh, some indicators for uh, Bitcoin trading view charts uh, that people can do. I two two indicators that sort of help you with the long term or the short term price movements and medium term price movements. Uh, if you look at the weekly on that, anyway, I can I I'll share those, and then um, uh, also, uh, uh, but with regard to the reading groups, uh, it's called the Los Gatos Reading Group. Uh, Los Gatos is the town I live in here in California. Again, 50 miles south of San Francisco, and so it's named after uh, was San Francisco Bitcoin, uh, San Francisco Bitcoin Reading Group. But then I moved, and uh, you know, here I am, Los Gatos Reading Group. Uh, and um, so, if you go to meetup.com, uh, um, just look up Los Gatos Reading Group, and uh, you'll see we've done, you know, like I think we're uh, we're right now we're doing a book on advanced Java, modern Java in action, uh, and then also uh, we're going through this Lightning Network book. Uh, we're just finishing up with the GRPC. Um, I'm sort of, there's a list of books that uh, we're, we're looking at uh, doing in the future, like on Sunday evenings, maybe uh, Thursday evenings. My Wednesdays are taken up with Bitcoin at the Santa Cruz Bitcoin group, but Monday and Tuesday are other nights where we're doing these two other uh, reading groups. So uh, trying to fill up the week. Um, 
And so uh, some of the some of the things that uh, uh, we might do is uh, well, Elixir I think is sort of really interesting. So that be that be sort of interesting. And also uh, maybe doing the internals of Git I think would be a sort of a fun reading group to go through that book. Uh, there's also another tutorial on that that uh, uses Python. Um, so anyway, uh, Los Gatos reading group. Perfect, perfect. What was the uh, what was the impetus of starting the reading group? Well, well, again, it started way back when uh, with with the uh, uh, first of all, I had the wonderful experience at the Stanford Bitcoin Club doing peer to peer learning and peer to peer learning, by the way, is uh, let me just sort of mention how we proceed. Uh, very interesting. Um, so uh, what we did at Stanford Bitcoin Club was we went through this book chapter by chapter. Each, each time we met, we went through a different chapter. So everyone reads the chapter before coming. And but everyone also has an added responsibility. Uh, people pick out very, a different section that they're responsible for. So as we go through the chapter, there's somebody who is presenting that section of the chapter in their own words. You know, it doesn't have to be anything onerous. They just sort of, you know, go through and express what's in the, that section in their own words and and, uh, and then leave it, you know, open for discussion, questions, and then we move on to the next section. And just that simple way of going through a uh, peer-to-peer fashion is really remarkable because so much uh, there's so much you get just by articulating what you've learned. I mean, you know, I really would, rec- uh, I urge people to sign up for as many sections as possible because, again, you know, it's just like you learn so much by articulating. And then the discussions that happen are really wonderful because, you know, you, you think you, you've covered everything in your own mind, but there are these questions or aspects of the, of the, of the, of the topic, the subject, which uh, other people uh, bring out, and you have these amazing discussions out of nowhere, and uh, uh, you learn so much more through that, uh, I think, through this technique. So we, we, what happened was with Jimmy Song's course that I had taken, this two-day course on, on his uh, uh, programming Bitcoin from scratch, where he used Python to build everything just from ones and zeros, you know, just, you know, really showing how to make these transactions, how to go through the elliptic uh, uh, curve uh, cryptography. I mean, we learned all that, you know, really from scratch. I mean, we didn't use a library for that. We, we created the elliptic curve uh, code. <laughs> And so uh, very, very interesting and fun. And so anyway, we number of us wanted to go through that at our own pace together. And so we, we began there. We went through Mastering Bitcoin, uh, Programming Bitcoin, Grokking Bitcoin. And then, then that's when I started also becoming interested in other languages. So we, uh, the reading group expanded into doing Rust and other things. And uh, so awesome. uh, and it's just a matter of uh, people meeting on, on Zoom. Uh, we tried various different uh, means of, uh, of interacting, and Zoom proved to be the best. Well, which so is cool we, now because because you guys are virtual, you don't have to be in Los Gatos to join. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, we you know we we've actually met in person once. You know, sort of discussed sort of where we what the next book was going to be and sort of socialize. And we we'd like to do some hacker gardens. You know, where we do we did do one hacker garden in West up in San Francisco once on this beautiful rooftop. Uh, oh, it's just a beautiful setting. Um, so occasionally it's nice, you know, for people who are local, you know, to have an occasional meeting where we do something and maybe, you know, again, a hacker garden or something like that. Uh, but for the, the reading group reading activities, uh, you know, we have people, you know, there's somebody from Australia who, you know, has participated and, uh, you know, other people from, uh, different locations. So, uh, 
Nice, nice. That's uh, that's really cool, and uh, I hope everything uh, is gonna go well with the reading group and and everything that you've uh, you're doing so far. But I really want to thank you again, Casey, for uh, joining the podcast and uh, sharing your insights into everything that you've been doing so far. But also get to explain a little bit about Bitcoin, crypto, and all that stuff. So so thanks, Casey. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure.